And now to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Tom DeLowry. He is a professor of medicine, pathology, and pediatrics in the divisions of hematology oncology, as well as laboratory medicine at OHSU. He's a native Hoosier, graduated from Indiana State University one year after Larry Bird and received his MD at Indiana University School of Medicine. Dr. DeLowry then did his intern year at University of California, Irvine, before traveling up here to Portland to complete his internal medicine residency, followed by hematology oncology fellowship at OHSU. His clinical interests are in iron deficiency, general hematology and coagulation, subjects on which he has written extensively. And he also has an interest in the hematologic aspects of wilderness medicine. He served six years on the board of directors of the Wilderness Medicine Society, where he also chaired their research committee. Many of you may know that Dr. DeLowry has won numerous teaching awards and has given educational sessions uh, to national meetings of many professional societies. He is extremely generous with his expertise and his teaching, and we're so delighted that you were willing to come back and teach our Providence audience again. So thanks, and I'll turn it over to you, Dr. DeLowry. Great, well, thanks everybody for being here. Again, sorry, it can't be live, but one of these days, it will be. And I'm here today to talk about the abnormal CBC. I have no relevant disclosures. I'm not owned by big anemia or anybody like that. So what are we gonna do today? And I'm really gonna have two basic goals. One, I wanna review what I look at in a CBC. And then secondly, run through at least my approach and differentials for specific abnormalities in the CBC. So, you know, we get a lot of things on CBCs, but I actually don't look at that many things on the CBC. I look at the hematocrit. People tend to be either hemoglobin or hematocrit people, and maybe my Hoosier background may be a hematocrit one. I obviously look at the MCV. It may be a nuanced thing, but I look at the MCHC, obviously the platelets, obviously the white cell count. And on the differential, I never pay attention to percentages. The only thing I care about is the absolute number. And so things like RDW, mean platelet volume, uh, MCH, I really don't pay any attention to. So uh, these, when I focus on a CBC, these are the main things I look at. So MCV, I still think is important. Uh, again, it seems like everybody either has a large or normal MCV, but if it's under 70, you know, it's really either thalassemia or iron deficiency. And I saw a patient yesterday in clinic with an MCV of 63, it was 89 a year ago, iron deficiency. So uh, that's good. Now macrocytosis is pretty common. And a lot of questions I get asked a lot on e-consults is my patient's macrocytic, but they're not anemic. So number one is always alcohol. Even a couple of drinks a day will bump up the MCV. Interestingly, smoking slightly raises the MCV. We can see it in dysproteinemia. And in a lot of people, it seems to be a normal variant. So, you know, if I see an MCV above 100, patients are anemic, I do a bit of a workup, but I don't get too uh, otherwise excited about it. Remember in microcytosis, it's really only four things, iron deficiency, thalassemia. Remember anemia chronic disease sometimes can be microcytic. It's rarely under 70, but the pathophysiology of, micro, of anemia chronic disease is denying the growing red cell iron. So it's not surprising, it's a little microcytic. Sideroblastic anemias are pretty rare, but it rounds out the differential. 
Now, one parlor trick I'd like to use is the Meltzer index. And this is the MCV divided by the RBC number. And if it's over 13, this is suggestive of iron deficiency. If it's under 13, it's suggestive of thalassemia. Again, it's a little bit of a parlor trick. Uh, we often do more specific testing, but if you're just handed a CBC, this is a nice little thing to uh, differentiate microcytosis. Because in thalassemia, you have a lot of little red cells. In iron deficiency, you have few little red cells. Now, the MCV is the mean corpuscular hemoglobin. Besides kind of having a cool name, I always like the phrase corpuscular. This tends to move with the MCV. Uh, over 36 can be a sign of hereditary spirocytosis, but to be honest, otherwise don't pay attention that much attention to this. Now, again, the differential, it's really the absolute counts and not the percentages that matter. And that's because the percentages really depend on each other. So if you have relative neutropenia, it makes the other percentages higher, and they're not really well standardized. So I really only focus on uh, the absolute counts. So what's my approach to working up anemia? Well, I like still getting a reticulocyte count. Uh, if it's really high or really low, I think that's important. Smear review, uh, I'm very fortunate. We have a CBC machine that actually I can review smears automatically on patients. But you know, if you ask your friendly lab tech, they'll do it for you. I worry about nutritional uh, anemias. So I like getting a ferritin, methylonic acid, and homocysteine. I tend to reserve methylonic acid and homocysteine for uh, macrocytic anemias or methylonic acid. There's neuro disease. Copper deficiency is not actually that rare. I've actually seen more copper deficiency recently than B12 deficiency. TPN, uh, people who eat zinc, which you can get in denture cream, are just idiopathic. And the clue to me is it's really anemia, neutropenia, and some sort of sensory defects, ataxia. And ferritins, I always like to raise the point that's pretty clear now the body set point of ferritin is 50. You actually increase iron depression below 50. There are several randomized trials that we improve fatigue getting the ferritin over 50. So I ignore the lab reference ranges. If I have a tired patient, their ferritin's under 50, they're iron deficient. Conversely, over 100 rules out. And again, we need to always consider GI workups and older patients who have iron deficiency. And so remember our set points uh, are wrong. We is, uh, are trying to get a, published a survey of multiple labs on the West Coast where really ferritins, the normal ranges were very inappropriate. So if you have a patient who's tired, their ferritin's 45, they're iron deficient, and they may well benefit from supplementation. Again, don't forget a renal disease, anemia chronic disease, uh, anemia chronic disease, the EPO levels not raised. Hemolysis is rare and can be tricky to diagnose. Classically, we like to see the retic count up, the LDH up, a positive Coombs test, low haptoglobin. Florida hemolysis, this is pretty common. Sometimes more subtle things can be harder to pick up. And in an older patient, especially with back pain, new onset renal disease, we can't forget myeloma. So I get a serum protein electrophoresis, serum free light chain assay. Now, when do I do a bone marrow? And I don't marrow a lot of patients. Uh, you can usually figure out what's going on. Obviously, I do it in their circulating immature cells. If they have severe pancytopenia, very severe neutropenia, very severe thrombocytopenia, 
you know, if I have a patient with liver disease, their ANC is 800, their platelets are 50, that's pretty typical for liver disease. If I have a patient with liver disease whose platelets are 12,000 and their ANC is 20, that's different. Very low reticulocyte counts make me worry about pure red cell aplasia. If you see nucleated red cells, that makes me worry. Sometimes we do it for staging malignancy. If you just don't know what's going on, uh, we do bone marrows. But fortunately now we have a lot of other testing that we can avert doing a bone marrow exam. Let's run through different blood counts and what I do about it. Erythrocytosis is a pretty common uh, diagnosis we see. Now, I tend to use, uh, for my own personal use, a hemoglobin mend over 18.5 or in women 16.5 when I get concerned about erythrocytosis. Um, and that's because there's been good studies done showing that's really above the 95, 99 percentile uh, in folks. Uh, and then I worry about if the hematocrit's up and also the other blood counts are up. And I think the first big cut on this differential is is it polycythemia vera, the myeloproliferative syndrome, or other causes? So what do I think about? Obviously, we think about polycythemia. We can't forget hypoxia. You know, folks in Bend have higher hematocrits than we do. Folks in Leadville, Colorado, at 12,000 feet have higher hematocrits. That can factor in. Sleep apnea has been controversial as a cause of erythrocytosis, but if you have substantial nocturnal desaturation, that will raise your hematocrit. So a sleep history is part of my history. Smoking clearly raises oxygen delivery. If you smoke more than a pack a day, your hemoglobin goes up by one gram per deciliter. So these are the things I look for in the history. Now, polycythemia vera is a clonal bone marrow disease. We worry about it because it raises the risk of thrombosis, especially strokes and heart attacks. The classic findings we see is often a high hematocrits. We often see the other blood counts raised. So if I see somebody with a hematocrit of 57, their platelets are 600,000, that's very suspicious for polycythemia. One quick test I do is erythropoietin level. In polycythemia, the EPO is suppressed. It's below normal. And secondary, the EPO can be normal or slightly elevated. Another thing that makes me worry would be erythrocytosis and thrombosis. So to me, those are the red flags when I worry about could polycythemia rubavera be going on. Now, one very common thing I see in clinic is erythrocytosis due to testosterone. And the mechanism is actually interesting. Testosterone increases stem cell sensitivity to erythropoietin. So uh, you get a greater bang for your buck with your body's erythropoietin. Interestingly, it also decreases hepcidin. So decreased hepcidin is an iron protein. And what happens is that increases the body's ability to absorb iron. So when you get testosterone, gradually over several months, your hematocrit will increase, you'll absorb more iron, and uh, often have a higher hematocrit. And so what happens when, when I see these patients? Well, one thing is it can take months to resolve. So usually what happens is testosterone supplementation stopped, a follow-up CBC a couple of weeks later, the hematocrit's still up. By the time they see me, because my waiting list in clinic, things have normalized. So remember it can take several months to resolve. 
what are the options? Well, somebody really needs testosterone. Uh, there are several things we can do. One is the urology societies recommend simple phlebotomies with the matocrits over 54. Sometimes spacing out injections can help decrease the erythrocytosis, although sometimes you can't get patient buy-in with this. And it actually seems, although it's more expensive, transdermal testosterone is less likely to cause this. So uh, these are some of the tricks I use with erythrocytosis with testosterone. So what other important causes? Renal uh, cancer uh, have always been a classic co uh, consideration of uh, <clears throat> erythrocytosis is this renal cell carcinoma. I have to confess, I've only seen it once, but we see other renal causes. Sometimes very big renal cysts lead to erythrocytosis. So that's why I always do a renal ultrasound when I see erythrocytosis. If somebody has erythrocytosis, high blood pressure, I think about renal artery stenosis. Again, hepatomas are a classic thing we worry about. Again, pretty rare, but sometimes I've seen it with hepatitis. And then certain endocrine tumors, uh, especially pheochromocytomas, uh, you can also see erythrocytosis. Now, one thing we're seeing new is all these SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, a lot of exciting data, how great they are, not only in diabetes, but in heart failure, uh, kind of a new wonder drug. But interestingly, and maybe this is why it works for heart failure, it actually raises the hematocrit by about two to 4%. And we're starting to see people with pretty profound erythrocytosis due to this. I recently saw a patient with hematocrit of 60 that normalized with stopping his SGL2 inhibitor. So with these new drugs, you know, a little hematocrit rise may be actually beneficial, but extreme erythrocytosis may be due to these drugs. The mechanism still being worked out, but it does appear these drugs decrease hepcidin, so you get better iron absorption, and can actually stimulate the production of erythropoietin. So sort of an interesting new side effect we're seeing with the new class of drugs. Now, genetic causes, you know, they're rare, but not that rare. What do I mean by that equivocal statement? So certainly in your practice, you may see only one of these throughout your practice, but I probably see a case or two a year of uh, genetic erythrocytosis. Most common, they're abnormal hemoglobins that lead to impaired oxygen delivery, and this leads to an erythrocytosis. So a lot of these, because uh, uh, Oregon used to be a center of excellence for hemoglobin disease, uh, are named after uh, uh, places in Oregon, like hemoglobin Spokane or you know in the Northwest. Erythropoietin mutations in the receptor are very rare. They lock the receptor in the on state, but there's actually a very famous uh, uh, Scandinavian, I think, cross-country skier had this who won about 10 gold medals. And then in oxygen pathways, there can be genetic causes. These are rare, but uh, I do see these and think about these. One other new cause we're seeing is actually carrying hemochromatosis genes. And this mechanism is still unknown. Uh, it's clearly not due to higher iron levels, but patients who carry the hemochromatosis mutation, even heterozygous, can have erythrocytosis. And we don't understand why. It may be that there's more efficient use of iron in the developing red cells. But I have a patient with genetic hemochromatosis with a ferritin of 10 
who still has a hematocrit of 56. And so this is something as part of my workup and I'm finding more and more examples. So what do I do? So how do I handle these patients? Well, I'm suspicious for polycythema rubavera if the other blood counts are elevated, if there's splenomegaly, if there's aquagenic pruritus, you know, patients stop showering because they itch too much when water hits their skin. And the test for this is the JAK2 mutation assay. It's abnormal 99% of myeloproliferative syndromes, polycythema rubavera. It's the diagnostic test. And so uh, that's my first line test. Now, if that's not what's going on, the workup gets a little bit more challenging. I like doing EPO levels, uh, below normal polycythema rubavera. I get SATs. I'm pretty frequently getting sleep studies. Uh, carboxyhemoglobin, because everybody's always just stopped smoking right before they see me in clinic. And so I get a lot of positive carboxyhemoglobins. I like getting uh, renal and liver imaging, hemoglobin electrophoresis. And then when you want to do the fancy stuff, I send it to a reference lab uh, like the Mayo Clinic for P50s and other abnormal hemoglobin studies. Now, sometimes we have patients with acquired erythrocytosis, the workup's negative, we have no idea what to do. And there's some exciting work by my colleagues at USC that there may be novel mutations in these patients. What I tend to do is just phlebotomize for symptoms. So if their macro goes above 52, they get headaches, they get dizzy, I phlebotomize. So what's the therapy? Well, polycythemia, actually phlebotomy is still the mainstay of therapy. So I tell my patients, if it's good enough for the Galen, it's good enough for me. Uh, hydroxyurea targeted therapies can be used. Secondary, if it's congenital heart disease, leave it alone. The erythrocytosis is there for a reason. Lung disease, I tend to phlebotomize at hematocrits at 57. A little bit controversial, but there is some data. Increased viscosity is harmful after that. And obviously, other causes, you know, give oxygen, uh, get CPAP, et cetera. Now, what about neutrophilia? Again, a very common consult I get. And I'll define it as neutrophils over 10,000. What are red flags to me? Really, if there's immature forms, blast, obviously, or if the white cell counts over 20,000. There's usually nothing good going on if your white cell counts over 20,000. So obviously, if I'm looking at the blood smear and see our rods and blast, uh, that makes me uh, go urgently admit them to the hospital. So what's the differential diagnosis? Well, neoplastic are really just two basic things. Uh, acute mild leukemia, there's blast. CML, which we have a pill for now, immature cells. So you get a CBC, the white cell counts 50,000. There's metamyelocytes, promyelocytes, myelocytes. It's sort of like the bone marrows in the smear. And that's almost diagnostic for CML. Uh, infections, rheumatic conditions can obviously do it. One underappreciated uh, thing is a strong connection between obesity and neutrophilia. The adipose cells make growth factors. There's low-level inflammation in a lot of patients with obesity, and the white cell count goes up. So this is a slide showing that pre and post-op of bariatric surgery, how the white cell count decreases, 
This is another uh, study showing as one weights goes up that the uh, white cell count also goes up. So very commonly, if I see, get referred to me at the white cell count, 13, 14,000 chronically elevated and they're obese, that's the cause of this. Smoking is another huge cause. Smoking doubles your white cell count. And this is an important fact because most of our ranges of normals on CBCs were set in what I call the madmen era, where we would all be sitting there smoking. And so now that we have a society with very little secondhand smoke, our ranges of normals of white cell counts are much lower. Uh, we actually recalibrated ours and dropped the lower range of normal by about a thousand. So I get a lot of concern about, oh, my white cell counts 3,000, my white cell counts 3,500. That, that's normal if you're not a smoker. Rarely pregnancy can do it, and obviously steroids. And uh, I've seen this even in people who pretty aggressively use steroid inhalers. Now in the hospital, sometimes we see leukemoid reactions with white cell counts over 100,000. And the clue to these is it's pretty new. There's something bad going on. They got a chronic infection, like an abscess. Really bad C. diff can do it. And rarely we can see it in certain solid tumors as a perineoplastic effect. But what you'll see are these white cells with these little dots in it called toxic granulation. Or you'll see doly bodies, which are these aqua blue inclusions. And that's a strong clue to uh, reactive neutrophilia. So what do I do? Uh, good history and physical. Again, really aiming for smoking and obesity. Testing, most patients want to be reassured. You know, sometimes if you've got a good relationship with them, you can just reassure them. But they're really worried about cancer. I do two things. For CML, I get fluorescent in situ hybridization. I'll explain that what that is in a second. But it's just a little bit more sensitive than PCR for BCR able. And I actually did pick up once a patient, positive fish, negative PCR. JAK2 uh, will rule out myeloproliferative syndromes. And again, I do a much more aggressive workup if the white cell counts over 20,000 bone marrow special genetics. So fish are just colored probe. And remember in uh, CML, it's the 822 rearrangement. And here we see the eight probe and the 22 probe together. Uh, diagnostic for CML, and again, quicker and a little bit more sensitive than PCR. Mild neutropenia is very common. Again, one is that our ranges of normal do not reflect a society that fortunately has very little secondhand smoke. And also there are some uh, inherited conditions that make people neutropenic. I tend not to really get concerned unless the A and C is under 1,000. And you'll hear in a minute, there's even some patients with that I don't get that worried about. And I really get worked up only if the absolute neutrophil count is under 500. So again, there's a broad range of white cell counts and neutrophil counts in the population with some ethnic variation there. Uh, again, uh, as people stop smoking, we're seeing shifts to the left of these curves. So what things do I think about? Well, very commonly, uh, patients from Africa, the Middle East, will be missing a blood group called Duffy. And this causes a mild neutropenia, 800 to 1,000. And so this is actually normal for these patients. 
And we're actually struggling in the hematology world of thinking of a name for this, except that it's actually normal for these patients. Interestingly, SSRIs can cause a mild neutropenia. I talked about copper deficiency, also usually anemic and sensory neurologic defects with this. So Duffy is interesting. Duffy is a red cell protein that's the entry protein for malaria vivax. And it also carries neutrophil growth factors. Patients from malaria-prone malaria areas such as Africa tend to be Duffy negative. So they don't get Vivax, but they also have lower neutrophil counts because they don't carry these growth factors. And this is totally and completely harmless. So this is where Duffy negative is found. We see a wide belt in the malaria belt in Africa, common in the Middle East, uh, a little bit into India, Asia and in uh, Central America. And so if you see a patient uh, with chronic mild neutropenia or chronically lower than usual white cell count, I actually now check for Duffy phenotype in the lab. Medicines are notorious, especially for causing severe neutropenia, uh, first generation anti-seizure medicines, Banco, I probably see one case of Banco neutropenia a year, and antithyroid medicines. This can also be a complication as well as SEPTRA. Although in these cases, it's pretty obvious because it's usually a very severe neutropenia starting right after you started the medicine. Um, and there's actually what we call a benign neutropenia. And these are patients who've always had very low ANCs, but they'll get an infection, they'll undergo surgery, they'll mount a perfectly normal white cell count. It seems a defect of margination where most of their white cells are living on the periphery. Uh, rare things can be a sign of hairy cell leukemia. Feldy syndrome, splenomegaly, rheumatoid arthritis, neutropenia. And again, the arthritis can be subtle. You know, classic teaching was they had to have severe arthritis, but I've really seen people with Feldy's for very mild arthritis. And the irony of this, although it's mediated by T cells, it actually responds very nicely to giving rituximab, which destroys the B cells, so go figure. So what do I do with neutropenia? If it's very sudden and they're sick, I admit I stop any new medications, prophylactic antibiotics, give growth factors, figure it out in-house. If it's mild, I take a history. You know, again, I don't worry if it's over a thousand. If it's under a thousand, I do a blood test called lymphocyte flow cytometry to look for abnormal lymphocytes. I look for anti-granulocyte antibodies. I get copper levels. I evaluate for other uh, rheumatologic disorders. And I will actually ask the blood bank to screen for Duffy blood group. And that often takes care of a lot of patients. You know, therapy, if it's immune causes, obviously immunosuppression. Hairy cell leukemia, we have specific therapies for. But most patients, I just follow. I don't treat. You know, if somebody's never had an infection, giving them steroids is not doing them a favor. And a lot of patients, I will never uh, have any issues with this. So it seems like mild neutropenia is really well tolerated in patients. And the big thing is not to do too much to them. The eosinophil, a really pretty blood cell. Eosinophilia is a very common issue. It's almost always secondary to another process. We worry about hyper-eosinophilic syndrome. It's very interesting, but it's very rare. 
but this is a very common issue we face. And it's interesting, there's actually no standard classification yet in the hematologic world of eosinophilia. It's something we actually have trouble classifying and coming to grips with. But also, there's another part of me with an eosinophilia consult that maybe goes a little bit like this, but let's work through it. Well, there's a variety of classic differentials, and this is the one I like. I think of neoplastic things, I think of allergies or asthma, Addison's is rare, but you got to think about it. Collagen vascular disease and parasites. So everybody, when somebody has eosinophilia, worries about a cancer. Hodgkin's disease is classic. It's usually not subtle. They got big nodes, they got night sweats, weight loss, and they got Hodgkin's disease. Rarely other solid tumors can do it, but to be honest, it's usually not subtle. These tumors are pretty present there. And lymphomas can occasionally do it. And we worry about hypereosinophilic syndrome, which is probably neoplastic in a lot of cases, although it's still hard to prove. So what is hypereosinophilic syndrome? Well, the criteria are eosinophil count over 1500 that's been persistent for six months and some sort of end organ damage, heart, neurologic, skin, lung. I put a star by the six months because, you know, if I'm seeing a patient that is in a count of 80,000 with heart failure, I'm not going to wait six months to call it hyper-eosinophilic syndrome. And no other obvious cause. Now, the problem is, and what we see a lot, is kind of people with high eosinophil count, but, you know, they have eosinophilic gastritis, they have eosinophilic lung disease. And I think a lot of these are kind of organ-specific hyper-eosinophilic syndromes. So I think that's why there's a lot of uncertainty in the classification of this. Allergies are very common. Every spring, every fall, I get a bump in e-consults. And people with allergies, it's common to see mild eosinophilia. Asthma is a classic. People can have pretty prominent eosinophilic asthma. And again, drug allergies, especially now we're seeing more dress syndrome, the skin rash, eosinophilia, uh, cardiac disease, renal disease. My tips to dress syndrome are actually atypical lymphocytes. It's a very strong immune reaction. If you have somebody with eosinophilia, just start a drug, like just a new antibiotic, skin rash, eosinophilia, atypical lymphs, they're getting dress syndrome. Addison's, it's because of the lack of endogenous steroids, we get a mild eosinophilia. And collagen vascular disease. Churg-Strauss is the classic you know, there's pulmonary involvement, sinusitis, pretty prominent uh, eosinophilia. We've seen some interesting variants in the past year with cardiac involvement, mainly in women. So it seems like what counts as Churg-Strauss is getting bigger. But again, any vasculitis can present as eosinophilia. Parasite. It's really just worms. Any tissue invasive parasite will cause eosinophilia. I've seen Toxocara in the clinic. We get it from dog and cat poop. Strongyloides, I diagnose probably one case a year. Remember this, you can auto-infect with strongyloides. It can reoccur after many years. Uh, we've all heard the horror stories of people getting treated with steroids and all of a sudden worms bursting out everywhere. And again, triclinella, it's why we need to cook our port, pork. We don't actually screen pork for triclinella, so we need to uh, cook it very well. Again, here's the little worm in the uh, pork tissue. 
Now, one thing I like to do, and one of the differentials I carry around is the differential of eosinophilia by the eosinophil count. And that's sort of my approach. You know, mild eosinophilia, endocrine disorders, Addison's live here, allergies, I've seen allergies up to 1500. It's not a skin, a topic dermatitis that causes a mild eosinophilia, rarely solid tumors, but in this range, I, I tend not to get worked up, uh, very excited, unless there's clearly unusual symptoms, you know, diarrhea, GI distress, lung disease, that's making me concerned there's something else going on. When you get in the thousands, that, that's where I get more suspicious of things. Parasites live here, most vasculitides, asthma sometimes can do it. And again, you start to worry about hyper-eosinophilic syndrome. Somebody presents with heart failure, and the eosinophil count of 3,000, need to worry about that. And again, the big stuff. Church Strauss can have very high counts. My record is 80,000 eosinophil count in Church Strauss. Hyper-eosinophilic syndrome, weird things like tropical pulmonary eosinophilia or visceral larva migrans will have these spectacular counts. So what's my evaluation? It's hard to make a guideline. It's, it's really a detailed history. Historical clues can be anywhere. My first case of Toxocaro is just talking to a guy about his job. He was a housing inspector. And he was carrying on about the house he expected a few months ago that was full of cats and he had worms. Uh, you may need to get stool samples. I think biopsy is key, uh, proving tissue invasion, et cetera. Now, the other thing that comes up is there are rare genetic uh, test you can do for hyperesinophilic syndrome. I rarely do these because the instance of these is so low. And I think this is one place where we waste a lot of healthcare dollars. So therapies, obviously removing the primary cause. If somebody truly has hyperesinophilic syndrome, there's a very rare cause that responds to matnib. Most of these respond to steroids. And really right now, the anti-IL-5 antibodies such as mepoluzumab is becoming our mainstay of taking care of hyper-eosinophilic syndrome. But remember, the vast majority of the causes are usually allergies or things you can figure out by taking a good history. Monocytosis, I call the poor man's sed rate. Uh, and it's about as reliable as the sed rate. Really, any inflammation will give you monocytosis. Now, if somebody's perfectly healthy, they have persistent monocytosis. That can be a sign of chronic monomyelocytic leukemia. Believe it or not, the diagnostic criteria by the HWO is just monocytosis for six months. But, you know, it's kind of hard to give everybody a diagnosis. And I kind of only worry about monocytosis if people have concurrent anemia or there's very strange monocytes on the blood smear. Otherwise, it's inflammation. I tend not to worry about it too much. Now, many labs are starting to do something called an immature granule site. And I think this has become the curse of every living hematologist experience. This is a meaningless test, a meaningless thing that's reported on the lab report. It's only validated for a few conditions like neonatal sepsis. It's always going to be up in any inflammatory disorder. 
Many patients just seem to have an elevated one. In fact, we had to redo our range of normal because we're seeing so many abnormal ones. And remember, if the patient really has blast, really has a lot of immature cells, the lab will call this out. So I pay zero attention to immature granule sites. If your lab reports this, I would recommend paying zero attention to this too. Something's bad on there, your lab tech's gonna find it. But what about lymphocytes? Lymphocytes over 5,000 are very common. And up to four to 5% of the population will have clonal lymphocytes. And so now we're even dividing it up. Low levels of clonal lymphocytes were causing monoclonal B lymphocytosis. It's sort of like MGUS, sort of as somebody referred to it as like the polyp of the heme system. Could be malignant one of these days, maybe not malignant now. And so what do I worry about when I see lymphocytosis? Is it a clonal disease? Chronic lymphocytic leukemia, uh, monoclonal B lymphocytosis is very common. Again, up to five to 10% of patients over the age of 70. Rarely these can be reactive. We always see lymphocytosis post-splenectomy. So it used to be in the old days, we only called it CLL when it was over 15,000. New lab techniques now, if somebody has a monoclonal lymphocytes over 5,000, we call it CLL. If it's under 5,000, we call it monoclonal B lymphocytosis. If you want to, you can just call it all CLL. It's kind of the same idea. The thing is most patients, especially in the primary care setting that get diagnosed with CLL, it's a disease that's observed. Uh, progression can be higher if the lymphocyte counts over 10,000, but it can progress at any count. So a lot of my mild CLL patients, I'll see once a year, twice a year, do a CBC, check for lymph nodes. Again, we have rarer causes of lymphocytosis, but again, these are usually picked up when you do the diagnostic test. So I don't worry about mild lymphocytosis. If it's over 5,000, then I'll work up. Lymphocyte flow cytometry looks for clonal populations. So we're worried about bad lymphocytes. We do lymphocyte flow cytometry. I also do a lymph node exam because obviously that's part of the staging. And if somebody has big chunky lymph nodes, that's a more advanced stage of CLL. The thing to remember is the prognosis is excellent. For most patients you pick up with mild lymphocytosis, no lymph nodes, no anemia, their prognosis is excellent. And in fact, in some series, it's better than the standard population, probably because they're seeing the doctor more frequently. So I, I spend a lot of my time reassuring patients. I follow them. I tend not to do very elaborate testing. Usually what I'll do is I'll see them like first visit, three months later, just to make sure the lymphocytes aren't taken off and then very slow follow-up. And a lot of this is just reassurance. Thrombocytosis is a platelet count. Again, a moving target. I think about is over 450,000. The primary disease we worry about is myeloproliferative syndromes, essential thrombocytosis. Secondary is very common. Adding to the mix is there's probably some patients who have just idiopathic pathic thrombocytosis, but we don't really have a test for that. So myeloproliferative syndromes, any one of these can cause thrombocytosis. Uh, central thrombocytosis, we see it very common in polycythemia rubavera. Rarely CML can present as thrombocytosis. Secondary can 
easily be in the millions. I see this all the time on the trauma service. Somebody gets bashed, their platelets get low, they rebound over a million. Inflammation can do this. Iron deficiency can do this. Uh, especially traumatic postplanectomies, I've seen it up to 18, uh, 1,800,000. Rebound after severe thrombocytopenia, we can see it sometimes in chemo. So that's kind of adding to the mix is secondary. What makes me worry about central thrombocytosis? Splenomegaly. My mentor, Scott Goodnight, taught me if you have a normal platelet count and a big spleen, you have ET. And that rule's never been wrong. Erythromyalgia, the strange phenomenon where the fingers get very painful and red. Thrombosis, especially things like Bud Chiari, visceral vein thrombosis, and then bleeding. And what's interesting is in essential thrombocytosis, we tend to see the thrombosis at mild elevations, 600, 700,000, bleeding with very high platelet counts. Because when the platelets get very high, they actually don't interact well with each other. And surprisingly, that leads to bleeding. So workup can be pretty involved. If you're really going to work up thrombocytosis, you got to check for the three genetic mutations that cause thrombocytosis, JAK2, CalR, Bipple. And many labs will have a thrombocytosis panel. I check a BCR ABLE, and I check a splenic ultrasound for two reasons. One, if the spleen is big, makes me worry about mild platelet syndrome. Secondly, I've picked up a couple cases of congenital asplenia. Mild thrombocytosis, not a big deal, but they need to be vaccinated, et cetera. I do a CRP for inflammation. I check a ferritin. Now, what will happen is I have a lot of patients with mild increases in their platelets, no positive test. Do they have essential thrombocytosis? Because it can be genetically negative. Is it congenital? There's actually some old studies say some patients test idiopathic. And what I do is I tend to avoid labeling. So I'll just say thrombocytosis. I treat with aspirin and I follow closely. So there's still a lot to be learned about these patients. And again, the paradox of essential thrombocytosis is the higher the platelet count, the greater the risk of bleeding. And ET itself has a very prolonged natural history. And we're really getting away from cytal reduction. So I have patients who are 30 years old, they have platelet counts of 1.5 million, and there's been shown no benefit of cytal reduction. I give aspirin if they don't bleed, I reduce their platelet counts if they're older, have vascular risk factors, or have thrombosis. Finally, thrombocytopenia. Classically, thrombocytopenia has been a platelet count under 150,000. My definition, what I call Delori-based medicine, again, I only really worry under 100,000. And that's because there was a nice study done years ago in Britain that looked at patients with platelets between 150 and 100,000 it's actually pretty rare for them to progress. So, you know, if it's obviously just not a trend straight down, classically been 125,000, I don't get worked up about it. So classically, we've talked about four things. Production defects, sequestration, immune destruction, non-immune destruction. That's the classic differential, but we can fine tune it. Production defects are very rare cause of isolated thrombocytopenia. Now, yeah, if you eat some plutonium, you're gonna get thrombocytopenic, 
but you'll be anemic, neutropenic, and that'll probably be the least of your troubles. So it's very, very unusual. Sequestration's hypersplenism. Uh, two things that's good to have. One, a big spleen. It doesn't have to be that big. Uh, there doesn't seem to be that much correlation between spleen size and thrombocytopenia. But it's very rare for the platelet count to be under 50,000 in hypersplenism. So if I see a patient with cirrhosis, their platelets are 20,000, there is something else going on. Again, if it's 50, 55, 60,000, it's their liver disease. But if it's below that, ITP, I worry about something else. Immune destruction, classic as ITP, also drug-induced thrombocytopenia. Non-immune destructions are things like TTP, DIC, vaccine-induced uh, vaccine thrombocytopenia. Usually these patients are sick. So if somebody shows up in my clinic with 2,000 platelets, it's actually a great day because I know what it is. It's either immune thrombocytopenia or if they started some new drug in the past two weeks, it's drug-induced thrombocytopenia. So again, the count is very helpful. Very low platelets are almost always immune destruction. 10 to 50, uh, I think about ITP. Congenital thrombocytopenia is actually common. I think about that. If they're sick, sick we got to think about the bad things, DIC, TTP. As I often tell people, it's actually the patient, the platelets between 50 and 100,000. That sometimes can be a diagnostic dilemma. Liver disease lives here, still can be ITP. You know, if they're sick, still can be TTP. If they're older, could be the beginnings of myelodysplasia. And again, congenital thrombocytopenia, probably 1% of people have some form of congenital thrombocytopenia. It lives in this range. So actually, to me, these are the diagnostic dilemmas. If somebody has a play account of 1,000, yeah, I know what it is. If it's 67,000, it's like, got to do some work there. So when I see somebody with thrombocytopenia, I ask myself a couple of questions. One, are they sick? If they're sick, you got to worry about TTP, HIT, DIC, whatever. If they're pregnant and sick, you got to throw in HELP syndrome, fatty liver. You know, it's a whole different... Uh, kettle of fish. Are the other cell lines affected? Then I worry about bone marrow issues, myelodysplasia, again, liver disease. If it's not, if it's isolated thrombocytopenia, then is it ITP or congenital thrombocytopenia? Remember in liver disease, all the lines are affected. Leukopenia is very common, and ANC in somebody with cirrhosis of 800, 1,000 doesn't worry me. Thrombocytopenia is common. Remember, if it's under 50,000, something else is going on. It's due to hypersplenism. But remember, the platelet, I'm sorry, the liver also makes the platelet growth factor thrombopoietin. So if you have liver disease, you don't have that drive to make platelets, so it's going to be lower due to that. ITP is very common, 1 in 50,000. The clinical history is the diagnostic test. No other cause of thrombocytopenia, normal blood smear. So again, somebody shows up my clinic, no new medicines, play the count of 5,000, it's ITP. Drug-induced is the most common autoimmune complication of medicine. The big drugs are Vanco, Septra, non-steroidals. Somebody started that in the past two weeks, that's the cause, you gotta stop it. Congenital can range anywhere from 10,000 to, I guess I should say 149,000. 
There's usually a long history of abnormal blood counts and a family history like, oh yeah, my sister has ITP too. Mm, that should raise a red flag. And what you can see is giant platelets and some CBC's machines will miss this. So maybe at Providence, their platelets are 90,000. At Tillamook, they're 10,000 because the CBC machine's missing the giant platelets. And so if I look at a blood smear and I see a platelet that's bigger than a red cell, that's diagnostic of congenital thrombocytopenia. And most of these have very little to no bleeding. So it's a diagnosis of reassurance. Again, my workup is guided by the counts. They're sick, brand new severe thrombocytopenia, I admit. I review the blood smear, looking for giant platelets, schistocytes, I get a splenic ultrasound, and I get a liver panel. So what's the bottom line? The abnormal CBC. One thing about I like about electronic medical records, it makes it much easier to find an OBC. If somebody's platelet count was 126,000 in 1995, you're golden. Sudden changes make me most concerned. And obviously, if the patient's sick and an abnormal CBC, that makes me concerned. I want to thank you very much for inviting me today. And again, sad I can't be there in person, but one of these days we will meet again and be glad to field any questions or heckling. Great, thanks so much, Dr. DeLowry. Uh, tons of information packed in there, lots of practical tips. Um, I'll give people a moment to continue to enter questions or comments, but we have a few already that I'll go ahead and work through. Sure. Um, so starting from the top, um, regarding ferritin, um, wondering um, about the cutoff of 100 to rule out iron deficiency. Um, it seems particularly in the inpatient setting, um, you seem to have a mixed picture often with a ferritin of, of 1 to 200, possibly still iron deficient. And then also, why do end-stage renal disease patients have goals for ferritin that are higher than 200? Those are excellent questions. So one thing we've realized in the past few years is the difference between true iron deficiency and what we call functional iron deficiency. So there's been a lot of nice studies, um, especially in the outpatient setting, so it may be a little bit wobbly inpatient, that if you have a ferritin over 100, you have normal bone marrow iron stores. And so what we, the difference is in the anemia of inflammation, you can have a ferritin of, you know, 1500, but your iron saturation is low because part of the anemia of inflammation is you sequester iron. And so that's a big issue in renal disease. So in renal disease, the big issue is when you give somebody erythropoietin, if you can't mobilize the iron, they won't respond to the erythropoietin. So we know now from excellent studies like the PIVOT trial, it, even if the ferritin's 800, if you give iron, keep the iron saturations up, People respond to EPO, they actually have better outcomes. I just read a report this morning, it uh, reduces heart failure by 44%. And so it's sort of that difference between functional iron deficiency, which we worry about in renal disease, now worry about in heart failure, and truly your bone marrow is empty of iron, absolute iron deficiency. And so I still think the cough of 100 is good for that, but now with the realization, heart failure patients, renal patients, benefit for having their functional iron deficiency treated is why we're seeing some of these varying goals for iron treatment. Great, and just as a follow-up to that, in some of these populations, would you then be looking um, more so at your percent saturation of, of iron um, alongside your ferritin or 
not necessarily. Yeah. So outpatient, I never look at iron saturation unless I'm worried about hemochromatosis. Uh, renal disease, uh, patients with renal disease, heart failure, uh, especially for epotherapy, I do look at the saturation because, again, if I'm thinking about functional iron deficiency, right now the iron saturation is the best test for that. Great. Thank you. Um, could you explain just a bit more about NSAIDs causing neutropenia? Um, I also noticed it come up later in the talk again, uh, perhaps details yeah. about the amount of timing of exposure. Yeah, so that's a good question. So I think the relative risk with any NSAID of immune neutropenia, immune thrombocytopenia is very, very, very low. But I think it's an example of a ubiquitous drug that's used a lot, which I just repeated myself. So uh, I would say the individual risk, like with, let's say, an ibuprofen of immune thrombocytopenia, immune neutropenia, is probably one in 100,000, maybe one in 500,000. But, you know, we have a few million people taking it, you're going to see it. And so what I worry about is, is some, if it's new start. So if somebody got a UTI, they started septra, let's say, the neutropenia in that week, that makes me worry. So usually drug-induced uh, autoimmune disease, it's really within the first couple of weeks of therapy. So if somebody's been taking Motrin for five years, they're neutropenic, I'm, I'm really reluctant to blame, blame the Motrin. Now, the only exception is uh, some of the antithyroid drugs. It may be a few months. But my rule of thumb is if it happens a few weeks of starting the medicine, I tend to blame the medicine. Great, thanks for the clarity, that helps a lot. Um, here's an interesting comment um, from one of our viewers. I had uh, a Mexican immigrant with an absolute eosinophil count of 1200 and mild intermittent epigastric pain who turned out to have H. pylori and the eosinophils resolved after treatment of the H. pylori. Um, so interesting there, I also wondered, um, I have read and perhaps rarely seen comments on association of H. pylori infection and neutropenia. Um, so any comments on either of those? That's great. I, I joke with my GI colleagues that H. pylori is the ultimate cause of all human misery. Uh, but there actually is, uh, <laughs> I'm not ready to say association of H. pylori to everything, but uh, including bad Zoom reception. But, um, but uh, the strongest heme association is actually with refractory iron deficiency. But there is an association with ITP, uh, and we have seen, autoimmune neutropenia, other autoimmune disease associated with it. Curiously, in Japan and Italy, treating H. pylori makes ITP go away. In the United States, it doesn't. So it may be actually different types of H. pylori cause different things. I've not thought about that for, as a cause of eosinophilia, but that, that's fascinating. And that'll give me yet another excuse to test for H. pylori. Maybe it should be pre-screening for the heme clinic now. <laughs> Great, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, here's a, a, a comment. This was a great presentation. Thank you, exclamation point. <laughs> Do you have this in a form you can share with us? Either share slides or an algorithm form. Um, I suspect we may be able to get that from you, Dr. DeLowry. Yes. And, and I share will. With I, uh, I, I, I do have a handout and I'll be glad to share my slides. So uh, I usually share slides without my vacation pictures to make it smaller, <laughs> but uh, I, I'll get those. I'll get those set off. Fantastic. I know I often refer back to your slides uh, on other talks as well, so we'll work on getting those to you and in the follow-up email to our audience. Thanks. Um, just a few moments left, um, so feel free to continue to post. A um, couple other questions. 
Uh, very early in the talk, you um, spoke to the elevated MCV, uh, which does seem to come up quite often, um, and mentioned that dysproteinemia can be a cause. Um, I wondered uh, if you specifically do additional labs to work that up, um, and if not always, when might you consider it more strongly? That's a good question. My personal practice has been to do it Usually, if it's, if these are arbitrary. I, I'm going to be the first one that these are arbitrary. But if it's pretty significant, like if it's 105, I have no other explanation. It's an older patient. I'll get an SPEP and light chains uh, to look for that. So I usually reserve it for older patients. And sort of, to me, uh, my arbitrary cutoff's been like 105. Mm-hmm. Great, thanks. And maybe just any also additional wisdom on some of these that we might initially con initially consider incidental findings. Um, I suspect many of them are driven by the degree of abnormality to decide whether to do a recheck first and what timeline you might let elapse before looking again. Well, that's great. You know, I think the biggest one, especially neutropenia, uh, it's I, I should correlate this, but back when people got colds and flus before we all wore a mask, uh, it seems like mild neutropenia is a very common thing. Somebody had a viral syndrome, their, th their, their neutrophils count would be down. By the time they got to see me in clinic, it would bounce back to normal. So, so my rule of thumb, since I've done e-consults and stuff, is it's, if it's new but mild, let's say it was neutrophil count was 2,000, 2,000, now it's 1,200. I often just say repeat in a month. And so I think for mild abnormalities, especially if the patient's asymptomatic or they just had something like a viral syndrome, I think repeating a month is, is perf perfectly fair game. And I, I recommend that a lot. And, mm -hmm. and to be honest, if I'm giving a patient iron or something, they have a slightly unusual finding. That's my personal practice. Like, uh, let's just repeat in a month. So, uh, so I think that's per perfectly fair since I do it. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. We'll feel off the hook. Okay. <laughs> Um, well, thanks. We're coming up right at nine o'clock and want to be respectful of everybody's time. So thanks as always. An absolute pleasure. I great. learned a lot. Um, we'll, we'll get your slides. Uh, have Sounds a great, great day. Thanks, Dr. Everybody Bob. have a good day. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. -bye. Bye.